Welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast. I'm your podcast host, Peter Ahmad, recording from Cape Town, South Africa, since June 2019. The Talking Transformation podcast provides an open and accessible platform for built environment professionals and interest groups to share their reflections and aspirations relating to the transformation of places and spaces in South Africa. It's intended to be a celebration of the individuals and community groups who are supporting formal and informal processes that are addressing the challenges of South Africa's history and shaping the future of our neighbourhoods and cities. In previous Talking Transformation podcast episodes, we've looked in depth at housing issues and challenges in South Africa. We've also considered the issue of title deed administration and how important addresses are to the sense of place and security for households and communities. In this episode, we go deeper into the question of title deed administration and why the processes around conveyancing to household beneficiaries are so important to the development processes and property market typically associated with subsidised housing. Dion van der Fente has been working with subsidised housing developments in South Africa for over 30 years. His understanding of the challenges and complexities with housing administration are extensive. He has an extensive understanding of the challenges and complexities with housing administration, has worked with RDP housing, informal settlement occupancy audits and profiling. I wanted to better understand the challenges facing these housing programs and why we are in a national predicament where the National Department of Human Settlements estimates that more than one million title deeds have not been transferred to the primary beneficiaries and occupants of the subsidised houses that have been developed. That implies more or less that a third of the housing opportunities developed in South Africa since 1994 have not received their title. This impacts directly on the security of tenure for the households. It prevents the creation of assets and the ability of those households to leverage the property as an asset with financial institutions. The situation also implies massive inefficiencies in the governance systems and property value chain for municipalities. Services can't be billed, rates can't be considered in instances where the legal transfer of the property has not taken place. I wanted to learn from Dion what can be done to address the processes and outcomes associated with these housing programs, what can we do better, and what, in his experience, works. As always, we hope you enjoy the episode. Less than 72 hours on from our conversation, President Ramaphosa would highlight the issue of title deeds and the inefficiencies, the backlog that we discuss as part of his State of the Nation address in Cape Town on the Thursday evening. So the timing of this episode is particularly apt, and again, it illustrates the challenges that government recognise and are trying to address through their efforts and priorities for this coming financial year. Here's the extract from the Sonar Address. This year we will take steps to unlock massive value for poor households by ex expediting the provision of title deeds for subsidised housing. The current backlog in processing title deeds is over a million houses, which amounts to an estimated 242 billion rand in assets that should be in the hands of South Africa's poorest households. We will focus not just on eradicating this backlog, but on making the title deed system more effective and much more accessible. It's just gone three o'clock on Monday, February the 6th, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by Dion van der Fente. 
Dion, you've been working in the environment of housing, housing administration for many, many years now. Welcome to the show today. Really appreciate your time. How have you been keeping? What's news? And where have you been? Thanks, Pete. Lovely being here. Just come back from an exciting trip to Australia, settled back here and rearing to go for this year. I'm dying to hear a bit more about the Australian venture and hopefully we can get into that a bit later. The reason that we are here today as a starting point is to understand a bit more about your experience in housing administration and particularly when it comes to things like the conveyancing space and title deeds, which is such an important part of the probably 101, I guess, about understanding the security of tenure that comes with somebody having a title deed and what that means. Tell us a bit about your background, where you've come from, how you've got into this space and what some of the immediate observations that you have is. We're sitting here 2023, almost 30 years on from 1994 and there's a big transition and you've been working in this space for quite a period of that time. I started my career in the banking sector, tending to financing of a medical, dental and professional sector and then from there I got involved with the formalization of ex-owner fair housing stock around about 1994. So I was fortunate enough to be involved with the old pre-1994 housing approach to the new housing reconstruction and development program set up. After that I have formed my own company and had just been going now for about 30 years, being involved in some of the major mega housing projects in and around Gauteng. Some of those projects would include? Lufering Housing, the project, a mixed housing project, and as well as a Leopold Housing Development Project. As I remember, the Lufering project, it's to the west of Soweto. That's probably about 30,000 or more houses. It's huge, is it? Correct, yeah. It's a long-term project. It's been going now for about five, six years, and it's still many years to go before targets will be reached, obviously linked to budget issues. Take us back to sort of 1994, that massive transition period, RDP and the housing being a major component, major driver of the reconstruction development program. The energy, the the whole vibe around those first years of democratic South Africa within the housing environment. What was that like to be involved in that period, Dion? I mean, it must have been an extraordinarily exciting time, a lot of energy, a lot of turbulence, I guess, as well within policy, housing acts, legislation, etc., Yes, it's been a highly political issue. Um, you know, you're coming from an old dispensation of mostly rental stock, subsidised rental stock, and then the shift has been across to our risk construction development program, housing deliveries with free housing. It's been also an accelerated environment where you're talking about huge volumes have been rolled out. You know, we needed to keep a track, especially with allocation policies. There's a huge change in attitude as well to delivery of housing during that period. Many of our listeners may not be familiar with the whole sort of conveyancing process. And the idea of primary beneficiaries or beneficiary administration and primary occupancy. Can you just maybe give us a, a very basic breakdown of those steps and why they're important within property value chain of people getting title deeds and what that sort of unlocks? A person applies for a housing subsidy. It shows the intent, I need a house. 
and are qualified according to the National Housing Code. So basically, we look at now a delivery process. The person has applied for housing subsidy. He now needs a house constructed and needs to take occupation and most important of all, get title deed. That, that is the end, end result. We're looking at, at real aspects here of getting a person from the application process smoothly to occupy the house without any issues like for instance as we will get to primary and secondary issues is um, to get a person into a house knowingly that he's going to have to be there for the rest of his life or at least until he can dispense of it after an eight-year period of time. You, you mentioned eight years. Why, why is that eight year an important time factor in this whole process? There is a process linked to the eight year restriction of trade, which has got its pros and it has got its cons. Restriction of the eight year restriction of trade is basically linked to a title deed. That only comes into effect when a title deed gets issued. Prior to that, there is no restriction of trade. So you are sitting with a situation where a person applied for a subsidy, he's got an approval, he might have taken occupancy of a house, but title deed could not have been delivered or registered because of various issues. So now you, you sit with a beneficiary who sells their house, without a title deed in place or abscond or rent it out. There's various reasons sure. why. And you cannot restrict him because the eight-year restriction of trade is only in, applicable when there is a title deed in place. This is what the National Department of Human Settlements would describe as the illegal sale of properties. And it's interesting to hear what you're saying is that actually in the absence of that title deed, mm. until that's been issued, you're in a sort of limbo. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Correct, yeah. How do you manage it? How do you penalize a person for getting rid of a house unless you do take actions which we, we look at? For instance, you can have a person who sells a house and you might look at maybe blacklisting a person, cancelling the subsidy, things like that. But then again, you're looking at processes, procedures, and I have not come across a person being blacklisted for selling a house or renting a house or disappearing. What is implicit in the policy is that if you've been a beneficiary and benefited from the housing subsidy scheme, you can't then claim a second time. So if you've stepped out of that, even in an instance where you've not received your title deed, but you were the primary beneficiary mm. and the subsidy was allocated, you cannot then come back into the system and claim a second time around on a, another housing yeah. project in the same or different district. Is that, I mean, is that correct? That, that, that is correct. One subsidy, one person, one property. That's basically the scenario which we're sitting with. Why do we find ourselves, Dion, in a situation whereby the National Department itself of Human Settlements is suggesting that in the region of a million households have not received the title deeds linked to housing opportunities mm. post-1994. Mm. Now, that might not necessarily be a house per se. It might be the mm. service site. Mm. It might be uh, original stock even pre-94. Mm. But it certainly seems that we've got a major problem. Why is that? And what are some of the, the remedies, whether it's in the policy, the regulatory, 
or purely operational mm. space. From your experience. Proper management of this whole process from day one is critical. You need to have proper comprehensive databases. You need to have the correct role players involved, especially the formation of project steering committees. You need to have all title lead instructions, all reports. You need to have a full analysis of where you are and where you're moving to. And most important is interaction with your beneficiary. Keep them informed. When are their houses going to be ready? Make sure they are still around. Because you do have a situation where a lot of subsidy application processes take place and beneficiary gets approved for a house, but the house is only going to be ready in a year or two or three's time. So a lot of things happen in that period of time. I would say beneficiary administration process should take place as close as possible to the construction program to alleviate the problem of tracing beneficiaries who get lost in the system. Is it correct that what we've often seen is that that process of the completion of the house itself, the service stand, has taken place prior to even things like the township being proclaimed, the general plan being uh, registered, etc., and that we're now in a situation where decades on from that the actual site service, the top structure, mm. but people are still waiting. And that linkage that you're describing yeah. between the, the completion and the administration, yeah. somewhere that's fallen off and we now find ourselves trying to play catch-up. Is that is that a correct analysis? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, to have a retired registered, you know, your technical issues need to be in place. Township registered, you need to have a proper SG layout approved, SG stand numbers, which is going to need to be linked to a beneficiary subsidiation, and not just a reference number initially, but I will touch back on to the issue of reference number. You know, there are major issues with regarding to registration of title leases. Very a lot of limits, and but it needs to be explored. And I know there was a program implemented with pre and post nineteen ninety four title lead restoration project. That program was implemented to deal with mm. title lead issues, where we had to go out and first of all see why couldn't title deeds be registered especially with regards to township registration issues. And then we investigated that and we said, okay, this needs to be done. And then referencing to the titles which could be issued and which have not been issued, transferred and also handed over, which is very important with the information which we had available from the municipalities those days. We saw that there was very poor record keeping of this title deed handover processes and change of ownerships and so on. So we had to really go around to all the regions and scratch for information to create a workable database to move forward with this whole program. But there again, also, they were dealing with easy, fixable problems. That was done. But then when the challenges came, that is where there was a slowdown or not really a willingness to attend to these issues. You've alluded already to the intergovernmental nature of this issue. You've talked about systems and there's obviously the housing subsidy system. I think it's the HSS, 
which is property of mm. the national department. Yeah. I think administered typically by the provincial departments. Correct. The benefit yeah. administration. And then you're saying that the municipalities obviously have re- responsibilities in respect of town planning and certain administration elements. What are those sort of the three spheres involvement and who's doing what yeah. in this process? Okay. At, at municipal level, um, that is where you would find that housing waiting lists are compiled um, the need for housing especially with a political drive behind it and then from from there you have to then have an allocation policy a council resolution to see from this information from the municipalities at provincial level because they are basically the allocations committee custodian we who is going to get a house? Prioritise um, old age, people with disabilities. You're looking at issues like a 1996-97 housing waiting list. So that is basically at that level. And then your national level, obviously, is where your funding comes in and where, obviously, if to create a project, you need to apply for a budget and that... Funding comes from national through to provincial and then from provincial to municipal level. Given that interdependency between those three spheres, how well aligned do you think those processes and systems are? And is there a sort of either room for improvement or are there enhancements that you've seen that have worked particularly well within that period of time that you've worked in this space? As I mentioned earlier on, um, you need to form a project steering committee, which will have representation from municipal and provincial level. This will drive a whole project with the rules, etc., set out in that regard. If you look at an issue of combining or setting up a steering committee, you need to have the right role players involved. That is where you need to look at your beneficiary administration team needs to be involved. Housing allocation committee members need to be involved. Local community representation, a contractor. So, you know, there's various role players as well as the conveyances needs to be involved. So, you know, you need to form a proper team. And most important is you need to create proper working databases management reports, management systems to drive this process. There's various sets of information which needs to be amalgamated into your management report. Like, for instance, tools which we have, which we need to look at is your housing subsidy system, as we have elaborated on. That shows what will identify to you which beneficiaries are approved for a housing subsidy, who's declined, and which applications are still in the process. Another system which we need to look at is the housing subsidy financial system. That will direct you to the financial aspect of which stands have had monies paid against it for either a slab or wall plate completion or different milestones. Then you have a construction program, which is important. The reason why we talk about the construction program is you need to according to that identify and which houses are going to be ready for occupation in time to give 
the beneficiaries at least a month notice to move because they're obviously aware they aren't sometimes have to give a month um, notice to move out. As you can see, there is different aspects which combine and give us a greater picture, even an issue like the key handover database, the title deed instructions to conveyances. You know, all those type of items need to be reported into a consolidated database and it needs to be managed and updated properly and continuously. You know, in the utopian world, it all works and all the parties are there and the administration is, is, is seamless. It would certainly seem the way we're at at the moment is that there have been deficiencies in that. You've alluded to this title deed restoration program, trying to get the title deeds to the households, but again, dealing with what was supposed to be on the system, according to the yeah. HSS, yeah. the original beneficiaries who may well have been long gone. So you often find yourself, if I understand again correctly, this idea of a regularization process. Can you maybe explain a bit about what a regularization process is now that differs for, for example, the that installation of the initial primary yeah. beneficiary? Regularization, in short, means that you have at a beneficiary is applied for a housing subsidy for a specific house. On completion of a house, a beneficiary now needs to take occupation and he's not traceable for various reasons. Absconded, moved away, a house unbeknown to you have been sold, rented, or beneficiary is deceased and there is no dependence or spouse or partner there. So basically, you're sitting now with a situation with a regularization. If you look at primary case, you have a beneficiary now in a house who's not approved for that house and he's got no paperwork to prove ownership of that property. That is, in short, what triggers regularization because now you're sitting with a beneficiary in occupation of a house. How do you deal with it? What steps do you take? What does the policy say? What actions needs to be taken? And this is where it gets tricky because it gets costly and lengthy affairs. It also, I guess, implies that there's almost a double job, that you're going to have to relook at the conveyancing, relook at the legal, may even include some of the planning costs and so forth. Is that correct? Is there a sort of duplication then of some of the costs associated? And again, who bears those costs? Yeah, look, the cost factor is unbudgeted. Now you're looking at, you have to do occupancy audits. You need to see who's in the house. How did they get there? Analyze it. That is quite costly. Further, you need to deal with trying to trace the original beneficiaries, which means advertising, local newspapers, at municipal offices, etc. So look, there are legal rules to be followed and steps to be taken before you can now say, look, we have exhausted mm. all avenues, mm. now we can regularize. But you have to show proof that you have taken ample steps to trace a beneficiary, and this is the steps A, B, A, B, C, etc. What are some of the documentation that would typically be coming up in the regularization processes? I'm guessing people would be providing things like affidavits and so forth, which is clearly... That's not the title deed. Yeah, It's yeah. back to this thing of in the absence of that, you're into, from a legal point of view, sort of a jeopardized situation. But I mean, what is it that typically people are using to demonstrate 
that ownership, whether it's through means like the police station and affidavit versus other written submissions. What's your experience show and demonstrate what people are using? We have come across many, many issues with regards to affidavits, either at a police station or through lawyers, etc. Very flimsy drawn, not much information involved. Um, just, I, oh, Mr. So-and-so, have purchased this house, and you will never find a specified amount. People just don't want to go that route. In occupation, sometimes it's forceful, illegal occupation, intimidation. So there can be various reasons for people getting into occupation. But the, the basis is a person sells the front door key to that house for X amount and they move away. That is basically what it boils down to. Tell me a bit about what your sort of practical solutions to dealing with the regularization could be in the future. I would look at a issue of amnesty, where you do have a beneficiary who is in a house. He is either a non or pre-qualifier for a housing subsidy. And we need to now look at, see, we do not want to evict. We rather want to try and go a route of, as you say, regularization and effect ownership. So I've looked at the issue of maybe give an occupant a three-month amnesty period to register, go and register for municipal services, to show intent from his side, let him pay for three months, come back after three months and say, yeah, let's prove it, I've paid for three consecutive months. And now we say, okay, fine, you've got a willing occupant. Let's look at the way forward through the legal processes. How can we affect ownership? Maybe they need to pay for the transfer fees themselves, or Understood. maybe you need to calculate a purchase price, perhaps. But we must take in consideration these already or these houses have been built. A subsidy funding has been made available, and the funds have been paid. So. It's not an issue of recovering of monies. The subsidy, say the level of a year or so, goes 116,000 rand. That subsidy has been paid to the developers, received his money, he's happy. One subsidy, one budget. It cannot create a replacement subsidy and have two subsidies on one stand. So you need to deal with whoever is in the house now needs to get ownership, but not linked to a new subsidy process. Deal with the de facto arrangements as, as Correct, you find yeah. them. Has this been tried anywhere? Is this is this something that you think is workable? Has it been discussed in some of the policy conversations? Not at all. It's just my way of looking at getting a process in place, knowing that municipalities are keen. I'm talking about primary and secondary, both um, issues. We know that municipalities need to get beneficiaries to pay for services. And this is one way of saying, yeah, we are, but it's all linked to arrear rental or arrear rates policies. Can arrear rates be written off? Is there a willingness? Political structures need to come in and, and guide us here. But we need to look and see that the arrears is there. What do we do with it? Do we park it? 
for future. It's difficult, but the idea is, is to have a look at the rear rates to be written off. Good luck with that. I look forward to understanding how that plays out and potentially becomes a, a lever around which we can improve the processes. I know many of the properties <clears throat> we're talking about are to be not rated. We're seeing more and more the chain, the, that transformation of a township economy from the original RDP into different structures, additional structures. You're into a whole new ball game there. Mm. Again, any observations or thoughts on that nature of the transformation and how effective the governance response has been, whether it's from the municipalities or from the more overarching policy within the national space? I will speak from experience from a project which we attended to on Gauteng. It was basically just before an election, so drastic steps had to be taken to ensure ownership to be effected. Arrear rates has been an issue where how do you collect it? How do you legally go after collecting arrear rates if the occupant is not the rightful owner? Some municipalities in Gauteng have thought that they would implement what you call a tenancy agreement with the beneficiaries who is now in their house and it's not the rightful owner, just to get them to start paying for services. But that's just where it stopped. Implemented tenancy agreement and hopefully they will pay, but there's no legal recourse for that person because he's not the rightful legal owner of that property. You alluded to the fact you worked in the banking sector yeah. originally, and I'm thinking, you know, in the absence of these documents of the title deeds and all of these things yeah. that go with that, whether it's building plans that are associated with a reconstruction, yeah. you can't leverage your asset in that regard. You can't lend against that. You can't go to ABSA, to FNB, to Nedbank, Standard, you name it. Say, I have a house, I have a property, it's in my name, I own it. And I please, can I lend against it? Mm. Which is typically the way the property market is, is, is you know, functions. Mm. That to me is one of the big drawbacks of the, the arrangements as they're unfolding mm. and our inability to, not when I say govern the space mm. in a, a draconian sense, mm. but just to say, how do we maximize the, the value, mm. the assets in that space at the quantum that they've been delivered on? Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Or am I, am I living in cloud cuckoo land? Basically, a housing, a house is a person's probably biggest asset, apart from vehicle, furniture, etc. That is something there which is his and could be his for the rest of his life, transferred to the family and the whole children, grandchildren, and it stays in the family. And over years, you'll find that alterations are being done, improvements are being done, value of a property gets increased, a fence gets built, etc. So... You know, it, it is a real tool or asset. And, and as you rightly said, it can be used to create funding for whatever issues there are. But there again, it depends on what the banks would look at as, as the standard of that township. Has it deteriorated? Has it increased? Is it viable to lend here? And obviously, the beneficiary's own personal financial situation. Sure. Does he qualify for some form of lending? Those type of issues. At the beginning of our conversation, we talked about the administration of typically the RDP. Uh, I know that's more recently been talked about in the sort of breaking new ground, BNG typology, mm -hmm. etc. But the, the other bigger program shift, I guess, over the last few years has been this idea of the FLISP, 
financial linked individual subsidy program. Can you maybe just reflect on FLISP and how that's different from or, or complements rather the housing subsidy and just your observations on the strengths and weaknesses of that as a particular housing program? Let's just take a reconstruction development mm-hmm. program house. A beneficiary qualifies if you earn less than 3,500 Rand a month. Expenses on that property is basically water, lights, rates. If you look at maybe three or four hundred rand a month, you're looking at about 30-35% of disposable income goes towards services. Now, if you take a person who earns 3,501 rand a month, he doesn't qualify for an RDP house. He now needs to go and rent somewhere, maybe pay a thousand rand a month rent, plus all other expenses. They disadvantage because now suddenly you're looking at a percentage of way about around about 40% of disposable income, which is very unfair if you look at the French around three and a half thousand rand. Now, FLISP comes in and it says, okay, we will finance. An income category of between 3,500 Rand and 22,000 Rand. Obviously, linked to bond finance, you need to go and qualify for a bond at a bank and full ownership, as we know. And also, it must be a newly developed project registered with NHBRC. So, you're looking at a new concept, more structured level of services. For bonded houses are normally higher than RDP level of services. So it's a lot of positives in this market of FLISP. So basically, you can approach any bank and then according to your salary scale, you qualify for a subsidy. I think it's about 30 or 40 different quantums between 3,501 and 22,000. I think maximum amount of subsidy is about 120,000 round about there. That helps you then, that money can get put back into your bond to decrease your bond payment. It's very helpful. Some people might get a 100% bond and that subsidy money can come back to them as such. The basis of that FLISP is is consolidating all the means of finance. Yeah. The subsidy, the bond finance and individual savings and so forth into that mix and trying to get the degree of subsidization more fairly aligned, correct? Correct, yeah. Your thoughts, Dion, as to how successful the FLISP has been? I mean, is that something that you spent a lot of time, particularly up in Kauteng, on in terms of the administration side or is that something that you think is still finding its feet? The response, for example, from the banks and so forth. Any observations that can, you might have had? We do FLISP administration for our clients and we've attended to about a thousand in the last two years with hardly any problems. There's a large project in Luferring which is very successful. But then again, you need to have a right product price. You can't outprice yourself. You'd probably need to look at a product price between five and 800,000 Rand. That's probably the best average product you could look at. You can go over 800,000 Rand, but then again, not many people do earn 22,000. 
You're catering for people in a category of about 15, 16, 17,000 rand, which is your mid-management level beneficiary. Yeah, I think that affordability issue is, is a significant one. Here in Cape Town, for example, it's something like 70%, 70% and more of households in Cape Town would be below 20,000 rand household income per month, which starts to raise yeah, serious, yeah, serious yeah. questions. I think we, we can always think about affordability in Cape Town as mm. seem to be an outlier in that property space. But your knowledge of Gauteng is useful here around what is the market there? What is those units in Lufareng being marketed at this stage? Is it at that sort of 700 to 800,000? And are you seeing that it's being progressively pushed up with the cost of living and cost of materials, which are obviously through the roof? It has over the last couple of years. Especially where the cost of land and services yeah. has really affected final product price. But it's definitely been an increase in the product. But there again, you know, it's a give and take. You add a little bit of extras to a house, you know, nice cupboards, etc., finishes and so on. So it's just not a takey. You know, the developers there have been very good in their planning and giving a marketable product. If we were to put you in as the, the new Minister for Human Settlements, and you had the chance to wave a magic wand within the policy space and the operational space. What would your primary thinking be in the shifts you would want to make? My recommendation is basic. We need to have a look at a review of your current subsidy application form. It's management to get to make sure that you get a rightful beneficiary in a house as soon as possible. We need to look at when you do a subsidiation form, pin down a beneficiary that with an affidavit, I will take occupation of this house within 30 days of notification. That's just not an issue, been an issue before, because everyone ignores the situation that for a rest of it, a person will just move in. But you know, it's, it, it's what? Beneficiary education is very important here. Then, I think we touched on a restriction of trade clause. Mm, the eight-year clause. Yeah, the eight-year clause. Now, as I've said, it's only applicable or kicks in when there's a title deed. Let the legal eagles look at maybe incorporate that in the housing subsidy application form so that the restriction of trade becomes applicable on day of occupation. From our side, I think that's important. And also, you do have a clause in the subsidiation form which says that if province or the cannot give you title deed or transfer within a period of three months, they reserve a right to cancel your subsidy. That is a clause in the housing subsidy application form. Everyone ignores it and it needs to be reviewed because it can be used, but... It has been ignored up to now. Let me just understand that. That sounds like quite a profound issue you're raising there. So you're saying you can cancel the subsidy, but then the negative impact would be mostly felt by the beneficiary, not so? Correct, yeah. Is that fair? Is that a reasonable outcome? Where that household has legitimately been through the system, has done what it needs to do in terms of on a waiting list, Mm. which is probably Mm. years and years, and then you find yourself looking at a situation where the subsidy has been withdrawn because of factors way beyond your competence because it's in the professional yeah, realm of yeah. conveyancing and so forth and the municipal the governance space mm. it's an interesting yeah. point but i'm trying to understand who yeah, feels the pinch yeah. the most 
The intention here with that three-month clause is to assist province where they cannot trace a beneficiary. Right. You can't rely on that clause to say, well, look, I'm not in a position to effect transfer because the approved beneficiary is not an occupation. That's my thought. It's open for discussion and further elaboration. I certainly get it in the situation where you can't find the beneficiary. Yeah. I was thinking about the situation where you've got the beneficiary in the house. Yeah. Three months on, nothing's happened. They yeah. haven't been given what was... Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it, but yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for elaborating yeah. on that. And next issue which we want to look at is when you do a subsupplication form, you fill and you have to fill in the address, the stand number, and it needs to be an SG, approved SG stand number. So you get approved on a stand and the stand gets ready for occupation and you can't find the beneficiary straight away. Now you're sitting with a situation of a house which is empty. Beneficiary is not traceable. My motivation here is what we call a delinking of a beneficiary, where you delink a beneficiary's name and ID number from a proper SG stand number and you link them to a reference number. Understood. That means now if stand number 10's beneficiary can't be traced, I can go to someone else with another reference number, put him straight away in the house. So basically you're gonna link a proper SG stand number to a beneficiary on the housing subsidy system once he's taken occupation with all the relevant documentation signed. It's a thing which I have taken up in Gauteng but we, we're still waiting for results or illegals to, to apply their mind there. Good luck with that. <laughs> and I, I look forward to hearing how that plays out. Dion, as we work towards a wrap, where can people find out more about the work that you do? Where can people get hold of you? Oh, Pete, um, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. My profile is there. People can go and look under DNA Development Consultants. Uh, we've been going for about 28 to 30 years. And then also uh, there's an email address, dion at dnadevelopmentconsultants.co.za. DNA Development Consultants. Dion, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's been an absolute privilege and pleasure to, to host you today. And thank you for making the time, for sharing so willingly your, your expertise on this. And I wish you the very, very best in the future, in your work, in your consulting space, Thank you. And hopefully we can pick up this conversation in a year or so's time and things may have improved. Think some of those processes, some of those thinking, some of the thinking you've talked about today, let's hope we see some of that in the systems. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. It's been exciting and we look forward to the next year and see what comes out. Look forward to it. All the best, Dion. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this content of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please feel free to give us feedback via our Twitter platform, that's at TalkingTransfo and the number one, or alternatively via our email address, TalkingTransformation101 at gmail.com. Thanks and recognition also to Tribal Need for allowing us to use their track, Flags, as our introductory and closeout music on this podcast.